we've all said it as kids growing up, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And we usually said that right after somebody hurt us really bad with their words. Because words are powerful, aren't they? Several years ago, Marsh and I went to celebrate our wedding anniversary. We were there for the first day after a long, long travel. And we were sitting there on the beach reading uh, books. And Marsha turned to me in that beautiful setting and she said, I'm tired of you. And I said, excuse me? She said, I'm tired, aren't you? <laughs> words are important, aren't they? You got to be careful with the words. In fact, the Bible says in Proverbs 18, 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And they are. It doesn't take many words to be powerful. Uh, a newscaster could say one word and lose their job. I could say six words about the President of the United States today and I could go to prison for those six words. You could tell one story and ruin someone's reputation. One sentence and scar a child for life or the lack of one sentence. I was watching an ESPN report on Brett Favre who played for the Green Bay Packers forever and it talked about all the accolades and all the trophies that he had won and he changed the subject. He said, you know, the, I'd give all that up just to hear my dad one time while he was living say, I'm proud of you. And tears welled up in this football player's eyes as he said, not once in my whole life did I ever hear these words come out of my father's mouth, I love you. Words are powerful. It doesn't take a lot of words to be powerful. It's like if you took your favorite drink, whether it's an iced tea or, or a Diet Coke, how much spit would I have to put in that to run it for you? That may have been worth the trip right there, all right? <laughs> Words are powerful. Now, given the fact that they are powerful, how do we live as wise people with our words? Well, the Proverbs says there's several things. One of the things is that we're to pause our words. Proverbs 29, 20 says this. Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There's more hope for a fool than for him. In other words, we need to be careful to pause before we speak. To give God a chance to intercede. See, there's whatever happens to us, whatever event, whatever is said to us, whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, and then there is our response. Now, somewhere between the action and the reaction, there's a space of time. And the more space of time there is, there's more of an opportunity for God to change how we respond. The Bible commands us not to be hasty, hasty with our words. In James, it says, be slow to speak. Now, if the Bible has a command, there's always the power to keep that command. In other words, we're responsible for that space in between. We're responsible between the action and the reaction. Responsible. Think about it. We are response-able. We have the ability to control words. And we can blow it off and we say, well, I didn't mean to say that or it just came out or I couldn't help myself or that's just my personality or that's my national heritage. I'm sorry, those, excuse, those excuses, they don't measure up because the Bible says that we are response-able. And so we're to pause our word and give God a chance. In fact, I think that when there's a great conflict or, or when there's sensitive information, we ought to actually sit down and write out our words carefully and allow the Holy Spirit to edit what we're prepared to say and go in to speak the truth with love. 
And so first of all, we're to pause our word. I think the Bible also teaches us that there are times when we're just to restrain our words. In Proverbs, the 10th chapter, verse 19, it says this. When there are many words, transgressions is an unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. In other words, the more we speak, the more there is a chance that we would say something wrong. It's what I call the uh, statement to stupidity ratio, all right? I mean, what is yours? Is it one to 10? Is it one to 20? Well, what the Bible says is the more you say, the more it's possible for you to be stupid, all right? For the dumb factor to go up. I mean, haven't you ever said something you wish that you could retract? If we'll restrain our words. In fact, the best thing to do is just to take entire categories where we say, well, I'm just not gonna participate in that kind of speech. That's the best way to restrain our words. Now, in your worship guide today, I've listed 10 different ways, the top 10 in honor of David Letterman, the top 10 words or kinds of speech that we could restrain and lessen our stupidity factor, our stupidity ratio. And I've listed them there for you because I'd like for you to do something today as we go through them very quickly. There's a scripture reference there that I'll quote that you can go back and look at uh, more deeply later. But I'd like for you just to, to put a mark, put a star or a check by the ones that the Holy Spirit says that you struggle with. Maybe two, maybe three, maybe four. If you don't have a pen or a pencil to do that, would you just make a mental note? Oh, there's, there's an area where I could grow in as a follower of Christ. Let's look at all 10 very quickly. First of all, there's name calling. In James 3, verses eight through 10, it says, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who've been made in the image or the likeness of God. Don't miss this. From the same mouth comes both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. There are certain things that should never come out of the lips of someone who has praised God. Now, we all just stood a moment ago and we praised God. And yet we will, with those same lips, lips curse people who were made in the image of God. People for whom Christ died. A racial slur should never come out of the lips of a Christian. A Christian should never call or label somebody a name. My wife taught school for 16 years and she had a rule in her class, which I think is a pretty good rule for life, that you don't call anybody anything except their given name unless you're complimenting them. So name calling is one of those. Number two, harsh words. Proverbs 11:9 says, with his mouth, the godless man destroys his neighbor, but through knowledge, the righteous will be delivered. God has given us a wonderful gift called communication. God gave us that gift so that we could resolve conflict. He gave us that gift so we could affirm one another. He gave us that gift so we could instruct our children. He gave us the gift of communication so that we could praise our God and introduce others to our God. If we use it to manipulate someone by using harsh words, if we use it to try to force them to do what we want them to do, it's wrong. We should never say words like shut up. We should never use profanity or crude words in order to try to power up on someone. I like what Billy Graham said. He said, profanity is the effort of a feeble mind trying to express itself forcibly. And it is. It's, uh, when, you, when you're not bright enough to, to make your case, then you just power up by using harsh or cruel words. In, in marriage, and, and Marsh and I have made a lot of mistakes in our marriage. 
But one of the things that we did right is that we knew going into our marriage that divorce wasn't an option for us. And so we just made a pledge that we would never, in the heat of the, an argument, use that as a threat against one another. And again, we've done a lot wrong in our marriage, but one of the things that we did right for 43 years, we've never uttered the word divorce. Now, the word murder has been mentioned several times, <laughs> but never have we used the word divorce. Number three, exaggeration. Proverbs 4, 24 says, put away from you a deceitful mouth and put away de devious speech from you. That means that we don't use words like always to describe somebody else's behavior or the word never to describe. That, those are rarely true. It, it means that we don't say you're just like your mom because nobody's just like their mom. They may be similar, but they're not just like their mom. That's an exaggeration. Number four, lies. Proverbs 14, 25 says, a truthful witness saves lives, but he who utters lies is treacherous. And there is no color of lies. There's no such thing as a white lie. A lie is a lie. And a lot of times we, we, we rationalize by telling the technical truth. In other words, what we said was technically true, but what we were doing is we were misleading someone. That's a lie. It's a lie. And we need to be people of truth. Because of grace, we're able to be truthful. We're able to accept the consequences of our actions and to be truthful about them. Number five, gossip or slander. Proverbs 20, 19 says, he who goes about as a slanderer reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with a gossip. Now, there are a lot in the Bible about gossiping, but I like this one because it says that there's a blame that goes for those of us who listen to gossip as much as those who speak gossip or who slander another person, whether it be hearsay or not. In other words, without a demand, there would be no supply. We could dry up gossip in our community if we would just say, wait a minute, stop, I don't need to hear that. Or if we said, wait a minute, do you know that for a fact? Were, were you a, well, no, but somebody told, well, if you didn't know about it, then if you didn't see it yourself, I, I really don't want to hear that information because we don't know if that's true or not. Or someone begins to slander someone and say, why are you telling me that about that other person? And if we will not listen to it, in fact, I really believe there's a sense in which you're just as guilty if you're listening to gossip and not challenging it. And I know that can be uncomfortable. But it's wrong, and we need to take a stand and not participate in it. Number six, misplaced complaints. Matthew 18, 15 says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won a brother. Once again, it's an issue of supply and demand. Somebody comes to you and begins to tell you about a conflict they're having with someone else. It is a biblical thing for you to say, Matthew 18. Now, they have a weird look on their face when you say that. Say, well, let's, let me tell you what it says in Matthew 18. If you've got a problem with somebody, you go talk to the person you're having the problem with. Question. This, which you are telling me, have you already told the person you're having a conflict with? If you haven't already talked to them about it, you have no business talking to me about it. And if you've already talked to them about it, you wouldn't need to be talking to me about it. Supply and demand. Bragging. Proverbs 27, 2 says, Let another praise you, and not your own mouth, a stranger, and not your own lips. You know people like this, that when they come and they, and they talk with you, immediately they begin to tell you all the things that they have won and all their accomplishments and all their labels. They're wearing all their ribbons and their medals on their chest. I was telling George Bush the other day, I hate name droppers. <laughs> you know, you, you, they got to tell you who they know and where they've been and who their connections are. 
Let me ask you this. When somebody does that, seriously, when somebody does that, does that impress you? No, it really doesn't. It's kind of embarrassing. It's kind of uncomfortable, isn't it? Because you realize how insecure they are that they have to bolster themselves up instead of letting someone else say kind things about them as it should be. Bragging. Ingratitude. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. A lot of us are guilty of that, aren't we? About complaining about everything, not being grateful for what we have. Always seeing the glass half empty. And we complain about the weather and we complain about the economy and we complain about uh, our government. We complain about our, our health and we complain about our personal finances and everything's gripe, 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 gripe. And here's the truth is that a complaining Christian is an oxymoron. Because if you really believe what the Bible teaches, there's nothing that goes on in your life that the sovereign God of this universe has not allowed. Now, he may not agree with all of it, but he's allowed it. And to always be complaining about what's going on in your life is to be criticizing the God who allowed it to happen. And to have a lack of faith that he has the ability that if we hand these things to him, if we hand these circumstances to him, that he has the ability to redeem them. That's why when Paul was thrown into prison, he sang praises to God and thanksgiving to God. Not because he wanted to be there. Not because he, he was being uh, unrealistic in his optimism. He just knew that his God could redeem it as painful as it was. Ingratitude. Number nine, criticism. Ephesians 4, 29, one of my favorite scriptures says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word that is good for edification according to the need of the moment that it may minister grace to those who hear. What he's saying here is when you have a conflict with someone, don't let anything come out of your mouth that just criticizes that which is past, but that it must edify. In other words, it must get on this solution side and request a better way. It's always about the future, not only about the past. And it needs to be something that builds up the situation, that adds to the solution. Notice what it says there, that it might minister grace to those who hear. When you have a conflict with someone, is that the way you approach them in a way that's sensitive to the moment that gets on the solution side, that ministers grace to the person who hears? You know, when my girls were growing up, uh, when they were very, very young, I used to come in from work and they would come and meet me at the door and grab my legs and hug me and say, Daddy's home, Daddy's home. And there came a time where that stopped. And I couldn't figure out what was going on. And Marcia knew exactly what was going on. She said, Steve, well, the reason that, that that happens is when you come in, you're always picking on everything that they've done or they haven't done. You're saying, have you cleaned your room? Have you done your homework? Have you picked up your clothes? And it's all negative. They don't want to see you because it's all one-sided. It's always pick, pick, pick. And so we made a decision, and I'm not suggesting this at all for parenting. Don't have a scripture for this. But we, I just decided that my relationship with my girls was more important than them having a clean room. I really did. Again, I'm not suggesting you do this. I'm just saying in my situation with the time that I had spent with my daughters, I decided to choose my battles a little better instead of every day hammering on the same thing. And so we just shut their rooms. When they moved off to college, we had a large truck come to the back of the room, and we just shoveled it out the back. We did. But I have a good relationship with my daughters today. you got to choose your battles. you got to choose. You know, one thing that helps me remember is just to think before you speak. In all your relationships, think before you speak. And you just take that across. You, you ask the question, first of all, is it true? Is it helpful? 
Is it inspirational? Is it necessary? And is it kind? And, and pretty much when you put something through that sieve, it reminds me of the scripture in, in Philippians 4, 8, where it talks about the things we think about. And it says, limit what you think about. It's got to be in these categories. Is it true? Is it helpful? Is it inspirational? Is it necessary? Is it kind? And if it's not, then restrain yourself. Number 10, unnecessary words. Uh, even a fool, I love the scripture. Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's considered prudent. If you want people to think you're really smart, shut up. Just stop, just stop talking so much. Just pause it, restrain it. Now, here's what I'd like for you to do. I'd like for you to go back at those 10 types of speech that we could restrain, that the Bible says we need to restrain. And, and would you do this? Would you just pray a prayer right now? And here's the prayer. Um, if you have the courage to pray it. Would you give the Holy Spirit permission this next week when you start being critical or when you start being harsh, uh, when you start uh, uh, bragging, when you, we start to, to violate any of these types of speech, would you give the Holy Spirit permission to tap you on the shoulder or whisper in your ear or for some of us to knock us upside the head? And would you make a commitment right now that if the Holy Spirit convicts you about that in the process of doing it you'll take a step back and you'll repent of it and you'll change it in the moment would you do that i'm gonna just pause right now and let you just pray a prayer like that gotta give you permission to call these to my attention and if you do i'll do something about it i believe he'll answer that prayer i think it's going to be a very interesting week to pause our words, to restrain our words. Third, to give life with our words. See, it's not just about what we don't say. It's not just about pausing and restraining. It's the fact that we can do a lot of really good things with our words. We can tell somebody that we love them. We can encourage somebody and tell them that we believe in them. We can affirm someone. We can thank somebody. Most importantly, we can point them to eternal life. In, in Romans, the 10th chapter, in verse 13, it says this. It says, for all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And how shall they then call upon the, him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? Now, this scripture says two things. First of all, it tells us, the, it reminds us of the marvelous thing that it doesn't take a very long prayer to save you. Today, you could turn to God knowing that you're separated from God because of your sin, because you've rebelled against God. You could turn to God knowing that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for your sins. You could turn to him today and you could say, yes, Lord. And those two words could change your eternity today. You realize that? That's the power of words. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You can be saved today. All you have to do, you say, well, Steve, I don't know how to pray. Can you say, yes, Lord? If you can, those are the two most powerful words. Yes, yes, please forgive me of my sin. Yes, please take control of my life. But don't miss the last part of that verse because it's for a larger group of us who are here today. And it says, how can they call upon him whom, of whom they have not heard? And this week, every single believer that's here today, every single believer that's joining us online right now, every single one of us are gonna have an opportunity to say a life-giving word. To say some, to someone who doesn't know our God that he is great, that he's mighty, that he's forgiving, that he's patient, 
to tell God how God has helped us in our own life and what's available to them. And you don't have to know a lot to share what you already know. Life-giving words. But the last thing we need to keep in mind today as we think about being wise with our words is not only to pause our words, restrain our words, or to give life with our words, but to check our hearts. In Luke, the sixth chapter, in verse 45, it says this, The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth that which is good. And the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. Don't miss this. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. This is not a message on trying harder to control your tongue. James tells us that no man can control his tongue. This is a message about letting God change our heart because if God changes our heart, it changes our tongue. You know why we brag? It's because we're trying to draw attention to ourselves and boost our self-esteem. If God changes our heart and he meets that need, we don't have to do that. We criticize others to push them down, to lift ourselves up. We have to win the argument. We have to control and manipulate others. Friends, those are all heart issues. And when God changes our heart, when we say to him, yes, Lord, and he comes in and he changes us, then it changes our speech. A man speaks out of his mouth what is in his heart. The reason a man lies is because he's afraid of consequences. Because he didn't understand the grace that's available in Jesus Christ. And a lot of us have said, yes, Lord. God has begun the process of changing our life. But in response to this message today, we need to say, God, continue to do a work in my heart. God, do a new work in my heart. Oh, God, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Let's ask him to do that today. May we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for what you're willing to do in our hearts and in our lives. And we know, dear Father, that the result of that will be a lot of things, but one of the things that will be a result is the way we speak to each other, the things that we say, the things that flow out of our mouth connected to our heart. And we thank you. And we do ask that you do a new work in our hearts today. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.